0: Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Simon Roberts, anthropologist and partner at Stripe Partners. We talked to Simon about embodiment and the connection between human bodies and technology. Simon questions the general notion of technology undermining the importance of the human, in particularly that of the human body, and instead calls for more empathy towards the body. The body is not a transportation device for our mind, but an equal partner in what constitutes our intelligence. Simon also shares his expectations from for the AnthroTech conference taking place in Bristol this October, stories of involvement in anthropological experiments, and gives us an insight into his soon-to-be published book going more in-depth into the theme of embodiment. And lastly, I'm co-hosting this episode together with a fellow anthropologist called Anna Aris. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Simon Roberts from Stripe Partners. Hi Simon!
1: Hi guys, how are you?
0: You are our third uh, speaker uh, that will be presenting at the Anthropology and Technology Conference, so I'm really excited to uh, to dive deeper into um, the topic that you will be speaking to, but maybe before we go into that, you can tell us and our listeners a little bit about your path in, in this space?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I suppose the, the, the long and short of it is that I'm an anthropologist, I... I've uh, always been interested in the relationship between humans and technology. Most of my kind of career work has been, professional career work has been has been focused on that topic. I first did research in the early 1990s on Hindi cinema and, uh, and cinema goers, which later turned into a PhD on the satellite television revolution in mid-90s India, and I've been Sort of selling anthropology to kind of policy and commercial uh, clients uh, really since uh, since 2000. So I've I've been doing this for for a while.
0: That's great. Um, and friends, we are here today also with my colleague Anna Aris. So she's, <laughs> she's gonna co-host um, this um, episode with me we are um, together writing a piece on exactly the topic that that Simon will be speaking to. So we are kind of very, very excited to understand better um, the topic. So Simon, can you quickly introduce it? Well, I'd like to think I can,
1: but um, as as we've sort of you know, spoken sort of off stage as it were i'm I'm actually in the middle of writing a book which is broadly speaking about about the idea of, of embodiment and of, of about embodied knowledge and and in the context of that book I, I have one chapter that talks specifically to what the theories of embodiment uh, and embodied knowledge uh, may uh, help how they may help us understand the Emerging world of artificial intelligence and, and and robotics. So, whilst the book has a sort of a broader uh, ambition, uh, one one chapter to sort of speaks specifically to, to to how that concept may help us sort of understand the the unfolding future uh, in front of us.
0: And can you tell us what does embodiment represent to you? Um,
1: I mean, in simple terms, embodiment for me represents a really good counterpoint to, in simplistic ways, in simplistic terms, the preoccupation that at least Western thought and philosophy and and in many ways practice has had with the mind and the brain since, um, at least since Descartes um, and, and probably a little bit before, so embodiment is, is 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 really a kind of a, a, a for me a, a sort of a, a counterweight to that and um, restores to the body a little bit more importance in terms of its role in 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 how we how we live in the world how we dwell in the world how we make sense of the world and and for me what it suggests is that the body is not just a sort of transportation device for carrying around you know, our crown jewels, if you will, our brain, but is in fact a kind of um, at least an equal partner in our sensory and our, our kind of intelligence capabilities. And so the book is really an attempt to sort of bring, to bring that idea to life, to situate it in the current, both political, I suppose, but also sort of technological or epistemological kind of context uh, which is one that I think is, is sort of tied to this notion of the brain. The brain is a computer. Computers are rational, give us objective knowledge of the world. And I think that's got us into some, some bad places. I think it's bad for businesses. I think it's not the best way to run societies. I think it obscures a lot of what's going on in the world rather than enlightens us. And, and fundamentally, I think it takes feeling and emotion and vulnerability and sentiment and lots of very human things out of the way that we sort of understand the world. And I, I think that's got us into a, into a rather tight corner. So if there's a kind of a political or moral crusade in the book, which I guess there is, it's, it's kind of bring back the body. So yeah, that's the, that's the rallying cry.
0: Uh, can you give some examples of of where you see this type of um, ideology restricting us?
1: Yeah, I think I can. Uh, hopefully, I can. Um, if I couldn't, I'd be be, be sort of um, writing nonsense. Yeah, I think you know. Let's take um, let let's take some some examples as I do in the in the book. So, um, what I try and do in the book is trace the is trace the sort of the history of a, of an idea. So there's a reasonably nice kind of sequence of events or sequence of ideas and events that that link the thinking of, of, of Descartes to, to a lot of the technologies of the modern world. So um, one of the things that you know, Descartes gave us, obviously his cogito that I think, therefore I am, but um, he also gave us what are called Cartesian coordinates. So the, the story goes that he was, he liked to lie in in the mornings he was lying in bed and he was looking at a fly circling around his room and he said you know how could i kind of map where that fly is in in space and what 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 that led him to develop was was xy coordinates right which gives us this kind of geometry and and that geometry is is actually present of course in a spreadsheet you know a, a cell that's filled in A5 is, you know, one cell along and five five cells down. So there's Cartesian geometry right there. But of course, satellites use that sort of geometry and satellites give us GPS and GPS gives us navigation tools and navigation tools allow us to wander around the city without paying the slightest bit of attention to it because we're just following a screen on our dashboard rather than using our... Our sensei bodies, Um, and it gives us lots of uh, just-in-time technologies, and you know fulfillment, you know procurement and fulfillment chains, supply chains. So a simple a simple technology traced all the way back to kind of an idea about how to map the world in sort of rational objective terms is, uh, is, is also a story about a technology that in many ways has taken us out of the picture if you will whether that's kind of using spreadsheets to drive a business or, or polling to kind of run policy making or or electoral systems or um, to change the nature of our interactions as we move around the city. So at a very broad level, the same bits of thinking that that that, that sort of implicate our, our brain as the as the organ to understand the world have led to a series of technologies that Fundamentally, change the way that we, we interact with it. And I think those sorts of relationships can be traced in business, obviously, the, the spreadsheet, um, big data, um, they can be traced in, in, in the world of, of education and the way that we think about what, what, what education actually is, what is knowledge, filling brains with. Bodies sitting tightly still in seats, and it, and it underscores a lot of how we think about knowledge in general. So, a long answer, but um, I think there are, there's a sort of start point, um, and there's a, if not an end point, then at least there's where we are now. And I think they're irrevocably related to the way that we, we think about where intelligence or knowledge lies
0: that makes me think you know because we've also struggling a little bit in our article with this concept of translation right like you take this this complex uh, human experience and then you try to reduce it to the binarity of zero and one but mm-hmm. how would a different type of translation look like like have you encountered in your um, experience other models of translation that that kind of attempt to um, build technology that is not built on this binarity
1: if the question is one of sort of how else might one do it i mean i think what i'm really keen not to do is to sort of say brain bad body good or all sorts of spreadsheet bad kind of first-hand experience is good i'm great sort of i like to think i'm a pragmatist and i'm a believer in kind of both and rather than either or kind of views of the world and so so for, for me you know one might say well okay great you know the spreadsheet and other things and other binary systems, if you will, are very good at taking experience and then shrinking it into cleaner slash more objective slash more binary uh, data. As long as we're aware of that and, and then we give ourselves the opportunity, to, if you will, to come back out the other end and say, okay... Let's recognize that we've taken complex experiences, complex realities. We've sort of reduced them down to something. What is the way that we can kind of reduce them back up if you want, if or scale them back up? So one of the things I've done in writing the book is actually sort of encounter lots of examples where, where businesses have done that. So, so one is, is, is something called the 2G the two, two Tuesdays. It's a simulator that engineers at Facebook built around 2015, where engineers went out to India, um, India was growing as a market at that time, feature phones would be taken over by smartphones, but the smartphones tended to be Androids. Android phones were not necessarily the ones that Silicon Valley engineers were, were familiar with, so they really wanted to understand what was going on in India, what was the reality of, of, of life like for Indians, using Facebook product. So a small team went out at a time when that wasn't necessarily particularly common. And they investigated what it was like to be, to be on the web in India. And, and they did that from a very experiential perspective, you know, just hang out and use stuff. But they also did it from a very sort of technical perspective. You know, they ran network traces and really tried to understand how the network, as it were, was actually functioning. And then when they went back to Facebook, of course, they had lots of stories and they had a very rich, experiential, you know, embodied understanding of, of, of what it was like to use their product um, in India. They met a man, for example, who set his phone to download content on Facebook before he went to sleep so that it would be ready for him in the morning. But what they also discovered was because they'd mapped the network, they, as it were, they'd done network traces they were able to reproduce that technologically. So for me, that would be a really good example of sort of taking an experience, understanding it in kind of binary, shall we say, kind of more objective, more Cartesian ways, um, and then taking it back out the other end and saying, okay, here's a simulator um, that allows you to sort of experience that. So for me, that's a really good example of sort of both and, right? It's kind of experience plus Plus kind of Cartesian thinking back out to experience. It's like a bow tie. Um, and, and when you do that, you can scale that. So that's, that solution has been scaled right across Facebook and, you know, engineers working across any product can kind of plug into this and, and experience their product, um, on, on, on a very slow, unstable network. Does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, I think it's a good example. Um, I wonder, you know, coming back to um, the skills of the people that do this type of work, right? I would imagine the teams that, that Facebook put together in this example to bring this to life um, had a certain composition of people, of skills, of... Um, how, how do you see that, you know? Like, is, is there even a link between these two for you?
1: Um, what the, the, the sort of... The, the skills of intuiting or... Um, making sense of a complex reality and then, and then turning that into some simulation.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, well, maybe I'll answer that question slightly more indirectly. I, I think what goes with the idea, the philosophy of, of embodiment is, is actually, in a way, the acceptance that our ability to make sense of the worlds that we immerse ourselves in that we dwell in is very fundamental in fact it's sort of it, it's something that we don't necessarily need to be taught it's something that we learn to do we have a disposition towards it as, as kind of Bourdieu would say so um and i think that throws up lots of challenges for sort of career researchers like me which is kind of what is it that i do that's more skilled or better than other people because actually i fundamentally believe that you know, whoever you are, if I drop you into a world to try and make sense of it, you may not be able to come back with some wonderful theory and a two by two that explains it all and and so forth. But I think you will have done a pretty good job of making sense of it, such that you can kind of exist in that world and survive, or if not thrive. So I think, in short, the answer is: I think we all have those capabilities, um, and, and and often. In the new way of thinking about research, what a consultant or a professional researcher is doing is in a way helping people make those um, make those journeys into other worlds, make those journeys into sense making them come back out the other side and, and not necessarily to be the smartest person in the room but to be the best guide, as it were, to help people tune into what it is that their body is kind of picking up and learning um, in an environment. Um, so I think everybody has that skill. Um, I think um, I, I think then it's just about it's about learning how to to make sense of what it is that you've learned. And I think the anthropological training is very is very important there because we we are, we learn that our bodies are that tool. Those are our that's our primary instrument. And and, and an anthropologist is taught how to kind of to make, make good use of that and that's that's our special source if you will you know we have training in that um but at a fundamental level I think it's a human quality somebody yeah. once said that you know rats are kind of um no one's better at being a rat than a it's better suited to being a rat than a rat. I think yeah there's no one better suited to being a human than a human. You know, we're very good at it, um, um, which is sort of a slightly obvious thing to say. Um, so, um, but again, I think for me, it's time to think about embodiment because actually we've, we've sort of forgotten how good we are at making sense of complex environments. Um, and, and and I find the desire to recreate, just for sort of the desire for to kind of go after general, general artificial intelligence, somewhat bewildering in many ways. I mean, what's wrong with our intelligence? Um, what is it that we gain by replicating ourselves? Um, and maybe we can talk about it in due course, but, but, but kind of, where's the area for kind of cooperation or, or competition between the artificial intelligence that we're seeking to build and, and the capabilities that we have?
2: Uh, That being said, what exactly are your thoughts on the relationship between humans and technology? Because I think from our experience it became sometimes very clear that there's this assumption around technology that it has the ability to transform something in ways that uh, people previously weren't because people have emotions and everything and it's a very Cartesian duality kind of way of looking at technology versus humans. Um, in the sense that indeed how we relate to technology and what kind of assumptions there are about the ways in which technology could help human beings
1: um, yeah I mean I'm a great believer in the fact that um, you know history tends to sort of rhyme and you know it's pretty obvious if you look at kind of all stages of human history and technology that they without exception throw up Moral panic, um, concern, fear, um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes worse, the, the smashing with, by, 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 by people who are genuinely petrified by what's coming. Uh, so I take that as a given. Um, and, and I think what that speaks to is uh, at some levels, a kind of a misunderstanding about 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 what it is that's being created, I think increasingly often it's not necessarily a misunderstanding, but it speaks to the very different power relations between those building things and and those that are, are being enveloped um, or implicated in them um, but I always like to think we should be we should be less scared than we we possibly are, not least because. I think the claims made about technology and what it's going to do to our world are are always um, we overestimate the impact in the short term and we underestimate it in the long term. And I think we're very good as a species at uh, getting ourselves a little overexcited and getting a little ahead of ourselves in, in some ways um, in terms of the near-term impacts. And maybe that's a good uh, that's a good reflex to have because we start to prepare the ground, we start to talk about issues um, and we start to worry about at the present juncture, we start to talk about biases and we start to talk about power and, and that's great. So it's, it's, and for me, it's a really useful reflex as a species we've got, which is there's things coming, we don't know exactly what it is, let's start a conversation about it so we can kind of get straight um, what's happening around us. Um, but I think we should always we should always take um, solace in the fact that we overestimate how quickly this thing 's really going to hit us in uh, yeah, how, how soon it 's going to happen and how big it 's going to be um, and also we should remember that we are incredibly good at adapting um, to a changing environment and and it 's us that 's changing the environment i mean when people say oh it 's robots are coming for your jobs it's it 's not the robots that are coming for your jobs it 's it's people who think that, who run factories who think that they can run a factory more cheaply that are coming for your job. So the discourse is completely up, upside down. Um, and I often use the, I often say in kind of conference talks, you know, the internet is, well, the internet, the World Wide Web is at a mass level, you know, if you date it to sort of Windows 95 emerging, which was the first operating system with a browser, you, you, you know, we're, what, well, 29 years in, no, 24 years in, that feels like a long time, right? But how many days is that? I can't do the maths, but three, 365 times, you know, 24. Um, that's not a lot of days. Um, you know, we haven't given ourselves much of a chance to get our head around all of this yet. Um, but we will, you know, the printing press and the book was a big shift once upon a time too. But um, we've coped. Pretty well. I think we've made the best of books, and books have been a good force for, for, for the world. So um, I think we have to be optimistic in so many different in so many different ways until proven otherwise.
0: I have a I have a question about um, embodiment, Simon, but it's still forming in my head, so bear with me. One of the things that that um, I'm thinking about is you know the way the the perimeter in which you we dwell in the world has a certain limitation. Uh and probably maybe before technology that limitation was was smaller or, you know, like you you feel you embody the environment that is around you. And with all of these technologies that kind of stretch your perception of what you can uh embody, um yeah. they do something to us. I'm just thinking about you know what does it mean to have a network, or to have a community, or to have a sense of family. I lived in New Zealand for two years, and I experienced this wonderful sense of isolation that at at that time I didn't see it as so wonderful, but now looking back, um, it kind of gives you, you look differently at at social dynamics of people, of the depth of kind of connection that you have with the space and with the people around you, when that stretches over a short, uh, I don't know, uh, patch. (laughs) Well,
1: if I heard you right, I mean, I think what comes to mind is somebody gave a talk at Epic last year on, um, she talked about what it felt like when a web page doesn't load. Bear with me, because it's a bit of a stretch from what you said, perhaps. But, but that really resonated with me as a kind of a really good example of embodiment, which is that's an incredibly difficult thing to explain. But I think we all know what it feels like We're sitting on, I sit on a train every day and, you know, the web is incredibly slow and it's just it it's painful, but it's it's sort of painful in a very visceral, in a very kind of embodied way. And 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 that's what I think is so incredible about the human body, that it it has that ability to sort of feel something like network slowness, right? In ways that are quite difficult for us to put any forms of words around. And I think, you know, one can feel kind of the warmth of a big social network or the warmth of a connection or maybe the, actually, let's say on Twitter, you know, the, the hatred in some of the interactions, the violence in some of the interactions. We can kind of feel that stuff bodily. Um, it's very difficult to put words around it, but I I think if that's what you're talking about, I think, you know, we are these extremely well attuned sensory beings and, and, and if we listen in to, to that, um, you know, that's something that's really, really powerful. Um, the problem is that we, we've learned to tune it out. We've learned to sort of just, um, you yeah, know, just to measure the internet in, in terms of, you know, megabits per second and, and of course, that's useful. Um, but what does it feel like to to feel that slowly, or what does it feel like to have a big network, or a small one, or a tight one, or a close one, or a kind one, or a, or a sort of one filled of vitriol? Um, that's that's what I'm kind of interested in, um, and I think we're really good at we're really good at sort of sensing that, feeling that.
0: Do you think that the if you know or do not know the people that are behind those words or behind that feeling, does it make a difference to how you embody a moment?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, it stretches into bits of philosophy that I don't feel very very capable of answering, even though I've been had my head buried in it for a while now. Um, I mean, I think at many levels, of course, we all live in, in sort of worlds that... You know, we don't necessarily have a huge amount of authorship over the systems and infrastructures that we um, that surround us and that we kind of participate in or or rely on. Um, I think there's always a tendency to sort of worry about not worry, but focus on the shock of the new, like oh, there's algorithms now, and there is it's like this new world where there's a whole load of stuff around infrastructure around us to. That we weren't aware of, and we should be aware of it, and we should be panicked. It's you know, there's an awful lot of infrastructure around us that we're kind of completely blind to, or ignorant, or ignorant of, or completely ignore. Maybe it's different. Arguably, you know, the algorithmic world that we're that suffuses us is is different. But but again, I, I just tend to think we always have a great ability as humans to kind of. Um, as the British would say, get your knickers in the twist, you know, get, get overexcited about about something. It, it, I'm really interested in, in seeing the echoes through history and saying, this is really new. And if it is new, like what is new about it? Or why does the experience of it feel different? And often that is about power and uh, power relations. But, but often I think as much as anything, this is, this is echoes of the past, just, just repeating.
2: It reminds me kind of, of what Daniel Miller wrote on the, the materiality of digital technologies as well. Um, I think he makes quite a strong case about that the digital is uh, still very material, even though it provides the illusion that it isn't. And, uh, you know, communicating online with people somehow feels less authentic. Uh, yeah. Because that's kind of the value that we put on these human relationships, like face to face or, yeah. uh, you know, but I think that's super interesting. Um, yeah. Because in the end, you know, technologies, also digital technologies are very material, but they're just designed in a way um, to make them feel uh, immaterial.
1: I mean, I suppose it's an important qualification. I think there is a lot of work. I mean, I think, you know, the artist and the, the author of um, uh, James Bridle, um dark age new dark age i think his book is called it's an excellent book he makes a very strong case actually for sort of attending to being being very aware of the infrastructures of the of the sort of network world there's of course a massive materiality to server farms and pipes that traverse the world Uh, yeah, so this stuff is not the the cloud is kind of allows us to imagine, if you will, that this stuff is just sort of up there and it's immaterial and and it's not, it, it whirls away, consuming vast amounts of, of electricity in enormous secure warehouses. So, you know, great. Yeah, that's 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 in that's important. Um, it's important to recognise that kind of base level materiality yeah i've as i said i have always been i've always been fascinated by or just wanting to ask that question what is new about this um there's a historian raymond williams who who you know memorably said you know society is is kind of willed coexistence of of new technology and very old social forms and and that's been my sort of enduring that's my sort of quote as it were that, that for me sums up my career and my my intellectual interest in in technology which is that dance between you know very old social form and 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 constantly new technology emerging and the debate about it for me is the most interesting thing in a way because it speaks to who we are or what we want to be what we hold dear uh, and what we're prepared to sort of let go of in return for something else
0: Simon, coming back to a point that you made earlier about everybody having this capacity there to just be for those um, that are listening in to this episode and um, will be also present at the conference, if you can maybe give a few suggestions of how they could practice that um, in the lead up to the conference
1: so how can you how can you take the principle of embodiment and bring it into your practice, whether that's a professional practice or whether that's um, personal practice. I Okay, so I think one thing, let's take the professional first. One of the things that, that we do here at Strike Partners with, with every project where we can is to think in, what well, we don't necessarily call it a Heideggerian concept, but, you know, we talk about worlds. So what's the world that you want to try to kind of get a grip of to understand? What's the world that you need to kind of immerse in in order to, to better understand the question in hand? So when we're framing a project, we'll often try to think of it in terms of worlds. And then when we've identified that world, we will then say, well, what are the ways in which we can kind of apply our our heads, our hearts, and our hands to understanding that? Um, And that might mean, you know, what are the sort of participatory kind of ways in which we can kind of get stuck in and understand it? What are the ways that we can kind of get an emotional understanding of it? And and, and who might we talk to to get a, a slightly more, if you will, rational view of things? So... To put an example on that, um, a few years back we did a study uh, for Procter & Gamble actually on, on fabric care and on detergents, which sounds incredibly boring, but, but the world that we wanted to understand was the world of the mainstream green consumer, so not the out-and-out eco-warrior, but the person that was beginning to care quite a lot about plastic and about um, nasties and chemicals in, in all aspects of their life. So we took a team on a kind of journey for a week where we tried to embody that world. So we tried to remove processed food from our diet. We uh, did a lot of washing with um, natural products. We used toothpaste made of, well, I don't know what it was made of, but it wasn't very nice. And we used natural cosmetics and we met people in all walks of life, who we were trying to be more sustainable in various different ways from kind of uh, getting the most out of all of the food that was in their fridge to reclaiming uh, unwanted materials. We did yoga together. We went to butchery classes to understand, you know, how to consume all of an animal rather than just the best bit. So we took this very kind of a holistic embodied approach to getting into that world and, and of course we had the luxury of a week and we had the luxury of some budget but I think the general principle it should be the same which is think of the world and then think of the different ways that you can participate in it that you can act in it uh, that you can expose your body to to that world and only then think about the ways in which you can go about getting kind of rational understanding conceptual understanding so which may be talking to experts or or looking at the data so we try to sort of start with feeling and then think about fact but the kind of idea that if you prime your body with a feeling it's better able what's it's is ready to take on board fact, if that makes sense. You have some experiential scaffolding, if you will, to, um, to make sense of the data. So I don't know if that answers the question, but it's in short, head, hearts and hands is, is not a bad kind of uh, way of thinking about it.
0: I think that's great. Um, it completely answers my question. Another thing, what, what are your expectations um, of the people attending the conference or if you have any at all?
1: I think what excites me about it is that the DAWN, the organizer, is very much targeting a kind of 50-50 split. And I think that's great. I think, you know, it echoes something that Sarah Pink said in her podcast, which is seems to be true to her career uh, and and I think certainly true to a lot of the way that academic, the academic world is going, which is it's multidisciplinary. And I think most of the breakthroughs not only in terms of kind of conceptually, uh, theoretically how we're understanding the world, but also practically are, 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 coming, are likely to come from, from interdisciplinary approaches. So I'm really excited about that and also I'm excited about that because frankly um, I'm kind of ignorant about a lot of this. I mean I try my darndest to stay up to date to to know what I'm talking about when I talk about AI or machine learning but there's so much happening and sadly you know I I don't think of myself as particularly mathematically um, adept, adept uh, not a scientist so you know I I, I sort of I, don't say I struggle with that but but that's not my kind of core territory so I'm really looking forward to sort of learning from people that that are kind of doing this, and and I'm also, I suppose, by the same token, I'm really interested to see kind of where are we at, right? Because the breathless stories about autonomous vehicles, for example, well, you know, it turns out that the predictions, as I said earlier, you know, we overestimate the impact in the in the in the short term and underestimating the long term. We were promised driverless cars by now. Well, of course, we were promised, you know, flying cars as well. But but we were specifically in, in the, you know in the near past. We were promised autonomous vehicles, and I am not saying where are they, but but rather I think what it shows is this is hard, you know. And this comes back to embodiment in a way, you know. Uh, humans have a pretty incredible intelligence, and driving a car around a city like Amsterdam or London. Is, is pretty darn difficult. And, and so I want to know why that's difficult. I'd like to hear more from technologists why that's difficult, what's holding me back, not because I'm impatient or, or anything like that, but you know, I'm not the sort of consumer standing there kind of tucked up, tuck, where's my driverless car, but, but more I'm fascinated as to what it is that, that's, that's making that more difficult than everyone thought it would be. Uh, and not to and not to sort of say ha huh, I told you so, but but rather just to talk talk about that, engage with that, and and maybe to learn from that what it is that's special about us. And and I think that's part of where the desire for my book comes from in a way, which is I think the body is our superpower. I think it's our source of competitive advantage in in the next sort of phase of technological development. Because it's clearly there are lots of things that AIs are going to do that either we can't do or we don't want to do or we can't do as quickly or as cheaply. Um, It may turn out that machine learning is much, much better and much more accurate at spotting malignant tumours. So great, let's celebrate that. And then let's say... What is it that machine learning can't do? Well, a machine machine learning is probably not going to be able to sit down and and have an empathetic conversation with a human and say, "Why are you feeling bad? Like, what's what's behind you not feeling well? Where are you at? What's going on?" You know that therapeutic encounter I can't imagine for a million years is ever going to be taken. A caring, and, you know therapeutic encounter is never going to happen with a with a with an algorithm. Yeah, okay, you can do some of this stuff online, but come on, I'm talking about a human to human interaction. So that's great. So let's let's shun the stuff that can be done by by computers somewhere else. And then then hopefully we can we can channel resources to places where where we can do what we do best. So so that's something else, I suppose. And then I'll be quiet. But I think there's that that debate about cooperation and competition. Let's talk about about who's going to do what.
0: In that line, I have just um, two more questions before you close, and they're actually under the same umbrella, which is the connection between um, technology development and capitalism. Yes, I think one topic that Julian spoke um, in his episode was kind of like the concentration of the brains in the technology space in just a few very large corporations mm-hmm. that literally control the world, and the fact that you know these ext- extremely smart people are developed and they put to think to how can we increase uh, consumption? How can we increase pleasure? How can we increase things that drive the bottom line? And maybe also in connection to that is how does that in turn affect um, our disembodiment and in, in our relationship to the planet and the way this kind of maybe excessive capitalism or consumption is affecting um, the way we connect with our environment and affect our environment?
1: Uh, two slightly difficult questions to end with there. Um, yeah, I mean, the first one, I suppose, is a question about are kind of some of the best brains in the world? Are all of these resources, should we say, sequestered within a, a small number of corporations and are they targeted at the right problems? It's pretty clear that there is a sort of a, a war game going on in terms of attracting talent, and it, and it does, it is tended to go to places that can can pay a vast amount of money. You know, in many ways. Again, back to my theme of shock of the new. But you know, I'm from where I'm sitting, I can see the city of London, and for many years that's attracted, you know, great brains as well, rather than people that wanted to go into social work. Um, so it's not necessarily a new phenomenon. Is it one that's, uh, that should concern us? I guess it should, in the same way that the Masters of the Universe in the City of London and New York um, didn't exactly, that didn't end well either, did it? So, so it, it probably does concern me. I don't, have, um, I don't have any sensible suggestions for what one does about that. I think when it comes to the role that these companies or uh, their technologies may have in mediating our relationships with the world, yeah, I mean, uh, of course, at some levels, they are, they are not all powerful. They are, again, you know, they are very powerful. I mean, one looks at Facebook and you say, well, you know, the whole world, well, okay, there's a whole of China that, you know, is not even touched by Facebook. So, it, again, it, it's sometimes very easy to sort of look at this and, and make simplistic statements, but, but actually, you know, there are vast amounts of the world that, that actually get their interactions uh, with, with with technology from completely different platforms, from a whole range of companies that most people in the Western world have never even heard of, let alone experienced. So again, it's not to sort of point elsewhere and say there isn't a problem, but but rather to say that that yes, there is a concentration of power globally in into a small number of entities. I think that is that is problematic, but I think one looks around and and there are lots of areas. There are lots of places where one can see these sorts of technologies being put to other to, to good use uh, by 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 other people. Um, there's lots of open data movements. There's lots of great tools being built with with open data, and I think the democratization of of kind of technology skills and and the emergence of open data movement uh, has meant lots of lots of opportunities for. For kind of more pro social stuff so again i 'd like to be glass half full about this rather than glass half empty. I think we are you know we are adapting both politically and culturally as individuals to what 's going on around us and I know there 's very little evidence for it, but I think we should have faith in the institutions of not necessarily just the Western world but some of our our, our institutions to to work out some of the best ways of dealing with this. And it will be a, a slow and difficult battle, perhaps, depending on your outlook. But I think that, you know, we'll, we'll work our way through it. It's, um, yeah. The world is complex and moving quickly, but, but, but I think there are a lot of very smart and well-meaning people who are on the case. And, um, and, and I think we'll, we'll get there. Let's be hopeful.
0: Simon, a personal question before we sign off. Um, is there any part of the book where you treat the topic of the connection between embodiment and climate change or climate crisis or?
1: Not directly. Probably I've just finished a chapter which is looking at empathy and how we experience other people's worlds and the role of the body in that. And, and in fact, I, 10 days ago, I was in Hong Kong doing a 24-hour refugee simulator run by a charity called the Crossroads Foundation where I experienced forced displacement and a, and a refugee camp and living in poverty. I mean, I experienced it, in inverted commas. You'll have to read the book to find out more, of course, plug, plug. But the only, So I don't directly address climate change there, but I do talk very briefly about the need for empathy and putting ourselves in other people's shoes in general and also putting ourselves in the shoes of people that we have not even yet been born. So if it's difficult to imagine what it's like or care about what it's like to be somebody else in the present, how do we even start to think about that for people that have yet to be born, you know, our children or our children's children? And again, that's where I think there's room for hope. You know, if one thinks about the body or the ways in which we can stimulate other environments, there's, there's tremendous opportunity to transport ourselves to, to other worlds and to other people's Conditions, but um, I don't know how embodiment solve climate change. But uh, I'm afraid I don't directly address it. But I touch on on issues of a similar of a similar type, if not gravity.
0: Oh, I can't wait to read it. So Simon, just for those of us, I'm not sure if you've mentioned it already, but when would you be expecting a potential release date?
1: so if you care to write it down, the book is called Hardwired, How Our Bodies Acquire Knowledge and Why We Should Learn to Trust Our Instincts. It's going to be published, I hope, in the first bit of of 2020. Yes, it's going to be available in all good bookshops. And and seriously, yes, I mean, it's been a really fun journey to write a book. Uh, I think it's fun. It's been great to learn how to write for a a wide audience rather than a narrow academic one yeah and i hope you know i hope it works out okay i hope what i've written makes sense and i can make sense of it for people and um and yes i mean if you're sitting out there and and this has in any way piqued your interest then then hopefully there's a there's a book um, for your for your christmas list in late 2020
2: for sure,
0: and uh, you know, I, I wish I have uh, sometimes moments in my um, episodes when I really wish uh, the clock would not show me what it's showing. Um, but we have to wrap it up. And for our listeners that um, are interested in taking this further, we just advise them to come find you at the conference in Bristol in October third. Yeah,
1: <laughs> totally. I'd love that. So yeah, I want to thank you so much for asking me. It's been an honor and um, and lots of fun.
0: Bye, Sarah. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.